Welcome to the I Love Alt Mortgages podcast, brought to you by Home Trust. And now, your host, Brennan Trenuth. Hey, Broker Nation. Today, I'm excited to be joined by a very special guest, Catherine Coons from CMHA, to talk about workplace mental health, including tips for self-care, as well as how managers can lead with empathy and create a space where everyone can thrive. Hey, Broker Nation, you are listening to I Love Vault Mortgages, and today we are flipping the switch. So instead of talking about the alternative space, we are going to be discussing the importance of mental health. Earlier this month was Mental Health Awareness Week from the Canadian Mental Health Association. And as we all know, your mental health is just as important as your physical health. Today, we are very excited to be joined by Catherine Coons from CMHA. Catherine, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Brennan. Hello, everybody. Well, we appreciate you joining us. Obviously, we're going to learn a lot today, but let's just start off with, for anybody that you know may not know about CMHA, can you just give us a bit of a background on the organization? Yeah, of course. So the Canadian Mental Health Association was actually founded in 1918, which makes it over 104 years old. And it's one of the longest serving not-for-profit organizations in the country. CMHA is also the only national organization whose work spans the full scope of issues related to mental health, mental illness, problematic substance use and addictions. And we really are non-disease or diagnosis specific. We operate as a federated model. So we have 330 locations across all provinces and in one territory. This includes one national office, which is where I sit. We have 11 provincial and territorial divisions. We've got 74 local branches and regions and nearly 7,000 staff and 11,000 volunteers and members. And at the community level, you know, really people rely on CMHA's grassroots presence. We offer a lot of variety of community-based mental health programs, services, supports, and resources. And then at the national level in the national office, which is where I am, we work on behalf of our branches and our regions and our divisions to really advocate for mental health system change, educate people about mental illness and about mental health and how to take care of it and really shift societal beliefs and behaviors to create a climate of understanding and acceptance. That's great. And I'm just wondering what kind of programs and support does CMHA offer at you know the branch level there? for anybody who needs, you know, information or support or anything like that? Yeah, so it really depends on the branch. We all kind of offer a variety of different types of resources. And I really encourage people to reach out to their local branch. You can go on our website and type in your postal code and that'll connect you with your local CMHA directly to the one that's closest to you. You know, reach out to them and see what types of services they have on offer. We do have, you know, free community-based mental health programs that, you know, build resiliency and support your mental health. We have a program called Bounce Back, actually, and it's available nationwide in French and in English. It's a really great program. It's free and everybody loves free stuff. So everyone should check it out. You get access to different tools and resources to support symptoms of mild to moderate depression and anxiety. You get paired with a coach and you have online videos and workbooks and things like that. And it's kind of a more facilitated program and that's called Bounce Back. So I think, you know, Bounce Back is something that I would really recommend people look into for themselves or friends or, you know, loved ones. It's a program where you get access to different tools and resources. You have to be aged 15 and up. But if again, if you just look, you know, search bounce back in your area, then you'll find out the closest one to you. It's available, you know, virtual. It's all offered kind of online and available both French and English. 
Perfect. Well, thanks for sharing that. And hopefully, you know, there's people out there that may uh, go and check that out. So that's great that you mentioned that. Let's talk about your role at Team HJ. So I know that your title is National Workplace Mental Health Specialist. Maybe you can just give us a better understanding on what exactly your role is. Yeah, for sure. And that is a mouthful of a title and I sometimes get tripped up on it. But I've worked in mental health for over 10 years and started at CMHA in the kind of middle of the pandemic back in 2020. And my role as a workplace mental health specialist is to lead some of our work that really falls under our social enterprise side of things. And that's our workplace mental health portfolio. So at CMHA National, we have a program called Not Myself Today. And it's a program that's designed to help create mentally healthy workplaces by providing tools and resources to build greater awareness, reduce stigma, and foster a safe and supportive work culture. So on that program, I help to lead the content and oversee the program design of, you know, that kind of thing. But most of my time is actually spent leading our training and consulting portfolio of work. So as you can imagine, it's been a busy couple of years through the pandemic. We've seen a you know dramatic increase in requests for training and workshops and lunch and learns. And as you can imagine, it was a big year this past year and through the fall. So I think I did about 80 different presentations and workshops across you know 70 different organizations last year alone. So I spent a lot of time working with organizations, understanding those needs, trying best to find solutions and support their learning through through training and workshops. So I you know speak on workplace mental health in general and self-care and psychological health and safety, you know, manager and leader training, really kind of anything and everything that's workplace mental health related. Oh, that's fantastic. Obviously, you said that you've been doing this for quite some time now. I'm just wondering, you know, why you decided to pursue this type of career, right? Obviously, it's not, you know, typical for somebody to go into this role. So I'm just wondering what kind of pushed you into this field? For sure. And I think for a lot of people who work in this field, it's both you know, a passion and a professional kind of goals people have. And I think a lot of people, I mean, statistically, we've all, you know, somebody with mental health challenges. But for me, from an early age, I was really exposed to some more severe mental health challenges in my immediate family. I kind of understood the impact that mental health challenges and mental illness can have on a family and what workplaces can do to either support an employee or really exacerbate that challenge. So I've always had a personal passion in mental health and mental illness. I did my undergrad in psychology and health studies at Dalhousie University. I then went and worked for the Center for Addiction and Mental Health. And going into that role, you know, I was a big camp counselor. I did a lot of canoe tripping and things like that in my summertime. So I wanted to marry those two passions and be kind of an outdoor therapist. I wanted to help at-risk youth in the wild. So I went into that first role after university at CAMH thinking I was going to be a therapist, thinking I was going to really work kind of front lines. And I was working on a study that was looking at a new research treatment for targeting everyday executive functioning deficits in folks with high functioning autism. And this role, I did that role for two years and it really opened my eyes. So the population that I was working with was high functioning autism. So they had average or above average IQs and, you know, incredibly bright individuals, but a lot of them were left out of the workplace. The workplace was not designed for them. People didn't know how to support people with similar diagnoses. So I was really inspired to kind of figure out a way to best support people, not only with autism, but other kind of similar neurodivergent diagnoses like autism and I quickly learned also that that time at CAMH was pretty intensive and pretty hands-on and it almost was you know front 
frontline work. I worked quite closely with the participants in the research study and quickly realized that it's such a commemorable role that people do as being that support for somebody. But for me, it was too much for me. I think I wasn't able to kind of disconnect from my clients or the research participants, and I took a lot of the work home. So I still was passionate about mental health, but I wanted to figure out a way that I could make the biggest impact and the best place for me. And that was workplace mental health. So I went back and I did my master's. I moved to England. I did my master's in occupational psychology. I wrote my thesis on workplace well-being and was really kind of inspired to start changing workplaces to be more inclusive and, you know, not only support those with mental illnesses and different diagnoses, but also create a space where everybody can thrive, where everybody is talking about mental health, where it's breaking down the stigma and creating more inclusive cultures for everybody with, you know, diagnoses included. So since then, I've been working both in the UK and in Canada in different roles in-house, you know, kind of creating programs and policies around around workplace mental health, but also kind of externally now more so facing at CMHA, working with organizations to help them improve on their overall kind of mental health and well-being strategies. My question then would be, have you seen any trends kind of emerging in workplace mental health? Maybe if you could compare it like pre-pandemic to during the pandemic? Mm -hmm, absolutely. There's been a huge shift. I think we do have a long way to go for sure, but I think it's unavoidable now. I think we can't turn a blind eye to it. I think the pandemic has really made it, it's no longer a nice to have, but it's a need to have for organizations. And where we are really seeing that shift, I think partly because employees are able to choose where they want to work more freely. They have more options. They can be remote working. So they're looking for supports. They're looking for, you know, a culture that supports mentally healthy employees. And they're looking for that flexibility. They're looking for different things that impact employee mental health. So we're seeing that shift from organizations definitely responding, you know, through the pandemic, our response to organizations has definitely increased. There's been more, more and more organizations reaching out, but also we've seen that organizations have increased, you know, their EAP programs, or they have increased their psychological benefit amounts to respond to that need. I do think that the pandemic has pushed it into the limelight. Burnout is on the rise. We know that, you know, people are feeling burnt out and, there are some things that employees can do to support themselves to avoid being burnt out, but really burnout is an organizational issue. It's something that it's embedded into the structure of how we design our jobs, how we support our employees, how much autonomy we're giving our employees, how psychologically safe they feel in the workplace. So I think, you know, we're seeing a shift in understanding that the responsibility is there are, of course, some things that we can be doing for ourselves, but the responsibility does largely lie with organizations and managers and leaders to make those changes. And, you know, some people aren't equipped, so we need to figure out how to train our managers and leaders. Maybe they were promoted and didn't have those skills. And, you know, that's absolutely OK. But how do we get them there? And we're seeing definitely people trying to upskill their managers and leaders, not only to kind of have those more challenging conversations and respond to crises and moments of challenges, but also how do we prevent them from happening? So how do we be proactive about mental health and psychological health and safety? So we're definitely seeing the shift. And I am hopeful for a while. I was one wondering if it was going to, you know, as we go back to work, if people were going to lose kind of focus on it. But I think because employees are looking and are being much more selective and there's this great resignation that I think that need and that desire and that drive to kind of make more inclusive and psychologically healthy and safe workplaces will last. Yeah. So my question is then, what are some small changes that on an individual level that people can make to improve their workplace mental health? Because I know like the verbiage is, you know, putting on your own oxygen mask first, right? So I'm just wondering, just from an individual standpoint to start, you know, what are some small changes that we can do to help improve our own mental health? 
Yeah, so you're right. Definitely making sure we are taking care of ourselves before we take care of others. I think sometimes we overextend ourselves because we want to help, but we aren't able to do that if we aren't taking care of ourselves. And I think the first thing we can do is really know what's going on with ourselves. You know, sometimes we don't realize how stressed out we are, how burnt out we are until we are really stressed out and we are really burnt out. So we need to be making time to check in with ourselves daily, weekly, whatever it may be to understand what's actually going on. You know, what are those signs and symptoms in myself that something might not be going wrong? You know, stress is a daily occurrence for everybody. Some stress is good stress. It can be motivating, but when it starts to tip and it starts to kind of hinder our performance, that's when we want to kind of take some time to think, okay, what are some healthy coping mechanisms we can put into place? So I think it really starts with, you know, maybe even putting it in your calendar for a weekly Monday morning check-in with yourself, you know, writing down, how do I feel? You know, am I stressed? How am I sleeping? How many cups of coffee did I have today? Has that increased more than normal? Am I finding I'm irritable? Am I finding that I'm being more defensive or I'm fearful or I'm worried? You know, giving yourself that space to actually check in with yourself and make sure you know what's going on with yourself so that if we are checking in earlier, we're able to intervene earlier. If we're able to see those signs and symptoms earlier on, we're able to get ourselves the help that we need. So programming that into your calendar, maybe it's a five minute every morning check-in, maybe it's once a week, whatever it may be, writing out how you're actually feeling. And if things aren't going well, you know, think about things that do make you feel better. So take some time to think about what are those healthy coping mechanisms for you. For some people, it's mindfulness. For some people, it's exercise. For some people, it's social connection. You know, eating well, sleeping well, and exercising have been known to be, you know, benefits to our mental health. But also thinking about self-care as a more of a holistic approach. So self-care isn't just taking bubble baths. It's not just those skincare serums. It's actually taking care of our emotional health. So, you know, practicing gratitude, seeing a therapist. It's taking care of our physical health, our spiritual health. So practicing our personal beliefs, our social connections, our intellectual connections, all of these things that support ourselves. You know, self-care and supports are different for different people. I think what we have to do as individuals is making sure that we are taking care of ourselves by checking in with ourselves, understanding what we need to do to make ourselves feel better, and then protecting that time. So finally, making sure we are scheduling time daily into our calendars, even putting it as, you know, block in your calendar to practice, you know, making sure you're taking breaks, actually taking breaks. I think sometimes we think we can be more productive if we just kind of plow through. I don't need to take 15 minutes. I'm just going to get through and get to lunch. But there's been so much research around that through the pandemic specifically around not only the benefit it can have on our mental health when we take those breaks, but also our productivity. You know, if we aren't taking breaks, we're not going to be productive. So give yourself the space to actually practice those coping mechanisms and protect that time. But it starts with really understanding what you need and what's going on with yourself. For us, obviously, being in the mortgage industry, being a lender, we deal with a lot of you know mortgage brokers in the industry, and a lot of them are leaders within their own organizations. A lot of them are principal brokers of their own brokerages or team leads of you know their own teams that they've created. So just on that level, you know, when you're talking more of an organization or more of a larger team. What are some resources or tips that you would give to them to help try and create a safe space for their team or, you know, the right culture and things like that? So I think in Canada, we have something called the National Standard for Psychological Health and Safety. It was written in 2013 by the Mental Health Commission of Canada. And it really serves as a helpful kind of strategic approach to creating psychologically healthy and safe workplaces. It follows a very similar model of how we approach physical health and safety in the workplace and occupational health and safety. And it's really about managing risks. 
So I think for organizations as a great kind of foundation and place to start is looking at the national standard for psychological health and safety in the workplace. It has these 13 factors that impact mental health in the workplace. It's things like workload management, sufficient rewards for actions, civility and respect, work-life balance. It provides a really helpful framework for organizations to lean on. And I think asking your employees what they need. You know, sometimes we think as leaders and managers, we know what's best for our teams, but really making sure they are involved in that process. We're listening to those needs and we're accommodating as best we can. You know, people are looking for flexibility and I think the organizations who will, you know, shine through and will lead the way are ones that are accommodating as best they can. Not every industry has the privilege or the ability to accommodate everything, and that's not, you know, expected. But as best we can, we want to really lead with empathy, ask our teams what they need to do their jobs well, and then accommodate and provide resources and tools. So I think it's a good place to start is involving your employees in that process. Look at those 13 factors for psychological health and safety and try to understand what might not be going well and then approach them kind of systemically in that way as well. That's great. I have a couple common scenarios I would say that we see most often. And I'm just wondering if we can maybe go through these scenarios to see, you know, what is it specifically that that person could do to, you know, help themselves or what can, you know, an organization do to help, you know, their employees. But like one scenario that we see often, obviously, is mortgage professionals, mortgage brokers, you know, they're obviously in most cases self-employed. And a lot of the times you hear that, you know, you work long hours and the feeling is that that's the only option you have in order to be able to grow, you know, a successful business. And realistically, you know, as a broker, that is your business, right? So what is something that you would say to somebody who thinks that that's the only way to grow their business or, you know, what other options would they have? I think this one is a tough one because it is an industry culture and norms that are kind of built out. And I think it's more than just one person saying, you know, I'm going to define my boundaries and I'm not going to work on the weekends or whatever it may be. It is a collective approach to prioritizing mental health. And I think, you know, it does start with one employee to say, you know what, actually, my mental health is important and I'm going to put those boundaries in. I think it's really integrating mental health and workplace well-being through everything that you do. You know, if you don't work a typical schedule, if you're kind of out and about, you're on and then you're off, is thinking about those downtimes. What can you be doing with those downtimes to support your mental health so that we're not just scrolling through Netflix when we're on our downtime or whatever it may be, is that we're using our time efficiently. And I think it's being clear with yourself with what are your boundaries and, you know, what happens when you cross those boundaries and how much are you willing to sacrifice for what we think of as a successful growth of a business, right? I think it's understanding your own priorities. And I think it's putting more emphasis on work-life balance. I think it's a hard thing, especially if you are self-employed, you're kind of working for yourself and you see a direct translation between hours worked and, you know, money earned. But I think, you know, that does come at a cost. It's not sustainable. And eventually, you know, the more flexibility we provide ourselves, the more space we give ourselves to recharge and feel good on a day-to-day basis, the more sustainable we will be. We are all only human. If we go 100% all the time, we will burn out. And that's a consequence in itself, right? So it's either you either kind of slow down now, you know, take some time for yourself and improve your quality of life by, you know, supporting your mental health through your daily workday, or you work 100% and then, you know, maybe three or four years down the line, you think, oh my God, I can't do this anymore. And then you have to take a break. 
big. So I think it's really taking the time to reframe your priorities. Think about, you know, where are you sacrificing things right now? How can you readjust and bring that back into balance? It does take intentional scheduling and sticking to that schedule. If you can program your days ahead of time and as best you can program time in for taking care of yourself or in for, you know, things that you enjoy doing, and then really try your best to stick to that and not overbook or not double book or whatever it may be. And as best you can try to prioritize that. But I think it does also, it's going to be a collective movement. We all have to start talking about mental health more. We have to start talking about benefits of not just working 100% all the time and, you know, valuing different things, not just successful business, I think is kind of a big ask and it's a big uh, collective kind of movement. But I think if we all kind of do our part, it'll get there soon. Sure. I definitely think it's, you know, built within the culture of the mortgage industry and that's, that's what you need to do to succeed, right? Which isn't always correct. So We just need to find a way to make sure that we're supporting ourselves. You mentioned managing work-life balance. So one of my other scenarios is just that. And obviously we saw a lot more of this during the pandemic, but you know, all of a sudden people are working from home. So you're at home, your spouse is now working from home. Maybe children are at home because school isn't uh, in class anymore. It's actually online. So I know that can create a lot of stress and things like that. I'm wondering, you know, what would you try and suggest within something like that, that kind of scenario? Yeah, I think the work from home has been an interesting experience for a lot of people. Some people have loved it and have been super grateful for that time, especially, you know, we've been hearing a lot from folks with disabilities who have been advocating for remote work options for, you know, many, many years. And finally, all of a sudden and seemingly overnight, they say, okay, yeah, you can work from home and that's amazing. And so I think that there's definitely a group of people who are really loving the time from home. And then there's also the people who are really excited to go back to the office. And I think that it's not a one size fits all approach. Some people have had really great experiences working from home, some have not. But I think, you know, when we work from home, typically, for a lot of people, it might be from your bedroom, it might be from your kitchen, it might be from your kid's uh, playroom or whatever it may be. And I think drawing those lines becomes much harder. Those lines become much more blurred. And I think practically, as much as we can, we want to intentionally draw those lines. I think if you can create a space, even if that's just the end of your kitchen table where that is just your workspace and that's designated to that, you consistently know you have a space in your home. If you can close doors where you know you aren't being distracted, that would be great. I think at the end of the day, you want to close down your programs and you know make sure it's out of sight, out of mind. I work from my living room, so when I watch TV, my workspace is also in my view. So as best I can, I close down my computer, I turn Turn everything off. I make sure that I'm not going to be, not even the screensaver is going to come on because that will draw my attention to it. Then remind me of work. Then I have to check my email and all of these things. So we want to draw those lines and build those barriers in physically as much as we can. People also have been really grateful that we aren't commuting as much, but that also means we end up working longer hours. You know, we end up logging on earlier and logging off later. You know, we have our breakfast and then we're working and we finished work and now we're having dinner. So I think giving yourself almost like a virtual commute, something that you do at the beginning of your day and your end of your day that signifies that your workday is starting and your workday is ending. That might be, you know, a walk with your pet. Every day before you start work virtually, you go for a walk with your pet or your kids and that signifies your day is starting. When your day ends, you're closing down your computer, you're turning off your notifications. If you don't have to be available 24-7, then don't. I think it's really protecting your time and then, you know, doing something that signifies that your workday is done and then your home life starts. We have to be intentional about it because otherwise it can kind of slowly slip into the space where we are we're working all the time and I think it does 
you know, require actually turning off notifications on our phone. It does require sometimes maybe even deleting the apps from our phone for our emails and things like that. If you don't have to be available 24 seven as best you can don't, or at least giving yourself, you know, two hours a night where you're not checking your email or whatever it may be, or an hour before you go to bed, maybe you don't look at your phone and, and an hour when you wake up, you don't look at your phone. So it's going to be different things for different people, but I think as much as we can making that distinction between your work life and your home life, especially when they are quite blended. And I think you kind of answered my next scenario as well within that answer. So that's okay. But you know, a, a lot of scenarios that we see now, and like you said, you know, you're getting messages, you know, late at night from, you know, your manager or director or things like that, or uh, they're requesting, you know, information or for you to do something outside of like the normal work hours. And I feel like now from working from home, you're starting to see a lot more of that. I don't know if there's anything else that you wanted to add to that, but that was just another scenario that if I could think of is that, you know, you're at home now, it seems like the norm is that you're supposed to be working all the time, right? That's not healthy. No. And I think as managers and leaders, we need to respect those boundaries ourselves. You know, I think there are functions on Outlook and Gmail where you can delay the sending of your emails. If you're sending emails outside of work hours, be respectful of your colleagues, you know, whether you're a manager or not, you know, setting that delayed email so that it comes into their inbox during typical work hours. For you, nighttime working might be great, but for others, it might not be, and it might add that stress. So I think it's being considerate of other people's time. If you're finding that your manager or your colleagues are really kind of hounding you at night and you feel like that's encroaching on your personal space, I would have a conversation with them around, you know, reiterating what your work hours are and what the expectations of you being available are 24-7, you know. And again, being clear and explicit about that. Some people I've seen even have in their email signatures, it says my typical work hours are, you know, 8 a.m. to 6 p.m. If I don't respond, I'll get back to you the next day. So I think, you know, even something simple as that, you know, being clear, communicating those boundaries. And then again, as managers and leaders, we have to respect them because, I think it's not sustainable as what it is. I think some people think that it's fine because we can all just, you know, rise to the occasion and figure it out, but that will not end well. So I think it's being respectful of others and then having those conversations around what the expectations are of you in your workplace and then being clear about what your own personal boundaries are. Sure. Well, thank you for <laughs> for sharing your insights to those scenarios. I just know that, you know, those are three that we see a lot or we experience a lot as well. So my last question here, and I know that you mentioned a couple of them before, but I just wanted to reiterate, you know, the resources that are available for people that are listening to the mm -hmm. podcast, whether it's for workplace or just for own personal health. I just want to make sure that they know where to go and, you know, if there's a website or the programs available, if you wanted to just kind of reiterate that. Yeah, I think the first line of support should be, you know, see what's available to you within your organization. If you have any sort of resources, any sort of benefits, any sort of anything, find out what's available to you internally. If you're a manager or a leader, we need to be experts on those resources and communicating those resources. So if you do have an EAP program, if you do have something, make sure that we aren't just onboarding employees and that's when they hear about it that we're actually circulating that information at all times if you don't have things like that from workplaces you know of course you're not alone there are tons of free resources out there you know start by going to your local cmha you know, go to cmha.ca type in your address and it'll find your local cmha closest to you there are tons of free crisis lines you know crisis service canada We've got our program called Not Myself Today. You could look me up and message me. You know, there's tons of free stuff out there. CMHA is a great kind of 
of resource as a good place to get you started as well. We also have the crisis lines and other kind of information like that on our website. And, you know, it's a good place to start. As I mentioned, the bounce back program is also excellent. So, you know, if you search bounce back, I think .ca or even just type in bounce back to Google, it'll kind of take you to the closest one to you. But I think it's just know that there are resources out there. Also on our website, if you search specific kind of concerns or challenges you might be having. So let's say you might be having feelings of anxiety. If you type anxiety into our search bar, you'll find also tons of articles and blogs and resources to get support that way as well. But yeah, I think it's just know that there is help. And if you are struggling, you're absolutely not alone. You know, the pandemic has been a really tough time and it's a marathon, not a sprint. You know, people are struggling now, but it's mental health challenges have always been there and they will continue to be there. So we need to be, you know, sustainable and practical about these solutions as well. Perfect. Well, Catherine, thank you so much for joining us today. Obviously, mental health is such an important topic to discuss. You know, there still is a stigma attached to mental illness for whatever reason. But, you know, we try to have these conversations to end that stigma as well. I also want to thank CMHA for being great partners of Home Trust going on nine years this year. Every year since 2013, we've hosted a charity golf tournament. And this will actually be our 10th anniversary this year with all proceeds going to the Canadian Mental Health Association. So I just wanted to say thank you again for, you know, being great partners of ours. And to everyone listening, just remember it's okay not to be okay. So Catherine, thank you so much for joining us again. Thanks, Brennan. Thanks for listening to this episode of I Love All Mortgages. If you or someone else you know is looking for additional mental health resources, please visit cmha.ca. This is an I Love Mortgage Brokering production.